Welcome back, Cracked fans. It's your host, Alex Gruskin. As you can see, Dalton is still on his sabbatical studying for that Indiana bar exam. Uh, he likes to say that's what he's doing, but in reality, we know I'm just the better host, and of course, I've taken over the Cracked Interviews podcast, and so we are happy to be back with you. You know, I brought with me some of our Great Shot podcast crew as well. Joining us on today's Cracked Interview, it is our super producer, and as he just stated, the newly chemist, Max Fligner. Max, welcome to the Cracked Interviews podcast. Did you say newly chemist? I don't think that's a thing, is it? Yeah, no, I don't think you can put an adverb from it now. As you say, you're producing this pod, so you can cut that or do (laughs) what you want. Fair enough. It's good to have you on. But here I am. I was going to say, is this my first time on Cracked Interviews? debut. Welcome. Can we get a victory bell for him? And yeah, so you you know, with you being on the podcast, I thought it was only fitting that today's guest has a similar background as you. For any of the fans who have listened to the Great Shot podcast, you know that Max played his four years of college tennis for Dartmouth. And so joining us on today's Cracked Interviews, it is former Brown University men's tennis player, the current head coach for Dartmouth, and I'll throw in a third one as well, a former Northwestern assistant and the ITA National Assistant of the Year. It is Dartmouth men's tennis coach, Chris Drake. Chris, welcome to the Cracked Interviews podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. So I have two opening questions for you, and I think they'll be good ones. The first one, did Max at all bother you to come on this podcast? Because I asked him every week, you know, bring Coach Drake on. We've got to have him. He, he really didn't pester me too much. Um, he mentioned a few times. Uh, I it's more that uh, I wanted to be on the podcast. So. <laughs> oh, you pestered him. That's really. Oh, I'm glad to hear. It. Well, exactly. we are, yeah, we are so happy to have you. As as I, we were talking about a little bit before this, it is our pleasure, and you know I've wanted to talk to you. But I guess my first question it has to be Max related because we have you both on the podcast. Um, <laughs> a college Chris Drake takes on a college Max Fliegner. Who wins the match? Oh wow, that is a good question. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, you, you know what? That would be that would be an exciting match. It would have a lot of uh, a lot of all court play. Me and Max have have similar games. I think that's why I enjoy coaching him. Um, man, I think it would have been quite close. I think Max and I had, had similar similar levels in college. So I don't know. Point here or there. Yeah. Five in the third. That was it's, the most. That's okay. Dip, oh, we may have to cut all right out of, of that my mouth. because I'm looking for a combative <laughs> podcast between you two. He no longer plays for you. It's fine for you to say you'd whoop his ass. <laughs> You know, if I have the knowledge I do now, I definitely would have beat him because I, I know all. <laughs> That's you know, true. He I, does. I he knows my I game. Would've, I would have played to his forehand quite a bit. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> that's a two-way street. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of a lot of bad forehands. Yeah, we'd be exchanging some uh, some short forehands, some slice backhands, and you know a few overheads, of course. A few overheads. I like it. Well, then, let's talk about your start in the game, Coach Drake, because not only are you a tennis coach, but as we mentioned earlier, you are a former college tennis player yourself. And for our listeners who don't know, your father, uh, the original professional tennis player, Bill Drake, uh, as I see from your Wikipedia page, which, by the way, for a college tennis coach to have a Wikipedia page, you must have done something right in your career. So well done. You know, that's a props to you. Uh, Can we get an applause? Uh, so let, let's talk about your start in the game, Coach Drake. Obviously, with your father coaching tennis, is that really how you got your start? You know, it was just following him around, seeing him on the court, and you're like, oh, I want to try this. Yeah, my, as you said, my dad is uh, a, a tennis coach. Uh, he coached at a club, the country club in Brookline, Massachusetts, uh, for over 35 years. Uh, he also coached professional players um, for a lot of the time when I was growing up. Tim Mayotte was a top 10 player in the world. Uh, Barbara Potter on the women's side is a top uh, top 10 player in the world. Um, and many other good players, Bud Schultz, uh, Glenn Leyendecker, just to name a few. But um, So, yeah, he, he got me started in tennis. Uh, I played a lot of sports growing up, though. Um, never felt a lot of pressure to play tennis. I more just, you know, was exposed to it through him. We'd go to his summer camps and 
Um, but yeah, played a lot of different things. Kind of like Max, actually, we used to bond about it. I like baseball quite a bit. For <laughs> much of my childhood, preferred uh, preferred baseball to tennis, but um, probably because of the, the coaching and exposure, I was a, a better tennis player than baseball player, and uh, eventually, you know, kind of focused in on tennis, but probably not until I was, you know, 13, 14 years old. Well, I, I think you're selling yourself short because I hear you were quite the soccer player uh, as well. Uh, to, to quote your dad, uh, you are the go-to guy for the last-minute goal in soccer or a ninth-inning run in baseball. Of course, that's a Daily Northwestern article from 2010, so uh, you know, take with it as you will. But um, I guess going in, you know, another thing, a characteristic when people talk about you, they always say, "Oh, his commitment to the game." You know, he's always had an incredible work ethic, and I guess. You know, in tennis, it's such a lonely sport, and it's so hard when you're, you know, 12, 13, 14, going through puberty to be out there by yourself playing. Um, as you mentioned, you had interest in other sport, but when was it that you gave your full commitment to the game of tennis, and when did you realize, you know, I may want to play it at the collegiate or eventually the professional level? You know, growing up, I I didn't have much thought uh, much thought about professional tennis. I think I probably started thinking about college tennis maybe 14, 15. Um, again, you know, things are much more accelerated these days. Um, kids tend to specialize a lot earlier, and I think kids and parents think about college uh, a lot earlier than, than I did growing up. Um, so probably around 14, 15, that's where I started focusing in just on, on tennis. I had always played tournaments and played, you know, sectionally and nationally up until then, um, but really focused in and just just started focusing on tennis at probably 14 or 15. And uh, I think playing some of the other sports probably helped me deal with those those pressures you mentioned. Uh, although I do remember, I thought every kid that grows up playing tennis has had some point where they thought they were going to quit. And uh, I remember <laughs> thinking it through a few times after some after some disappointing matches. Um, but my parents were good about it. Again, I never felt like there was a lot of um, pressure from their end to, to be playing tennis or to play college tennis or anything. So, um, you know, it kind of just just happened over time. Unfortunately, I was, you know, good enough to be to be considered to play, you know, at some Division One school. Well, Ben, let's get right into that. And for this answer, I, if you could, I need both the Chris Drake, the player, and then Coach Drake, you know, the, the coach now, to answer this question. So when you were going through the recruiting process as a player, uh, one, when did it come to your attention, hey, I'm good enough to play college tennis, and here are the things I need to do to be recruited? And then two, as a coach, what advice would you have for, you know, the 15, 16-year-old who realizes they make their sectional, they make their, you know, the Midwest clothes for us, that's a big tournament where you start to distinguish yourself. You know, what do you say to that kid as they start to look and see if college tennis is the right path for them? Yeah, I think, um, you know, for me, uh, the first part of your question was when, when I uh, started thinking about college tennis for, for myself or... Well, look, yeah, look, I don't have the I don't have the Ivy League education. I'm a Michigan guy, so I ask the long-winded questions. Some of them may be run-on sentences, so you know you got to cut me a little slack here with you and Fliegner. I see the dirty wow, eyes. Wow, you have a chip on your shoulder. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the the little man in this spot. I got to fight for my credibility. Uh, I'm also just. The coming through. The Michigan degree is nothing to be scoffed at. Look, I'm not ashamed, but the real thing I'm compensating for is I'm so much worse at tennis than both of you, and I just feel that pressure on me the whole time. That's funny. Although I was telling you earlier, I was looking through their Massachusetts high school rankings, and I couldn't find anything. But you look in those Michigan archives, you'll see the 2012 Country Day team with Fliegner and I as the stars, state champions. So that's one for us, I guess. But you know, getting back to the that's a Michigan tangent for you and now we'll get back to the question I guess part one of my question when you were a kid going through the process what were you looking for from schools and what were you looking for you know from your from an experience of this is why I would want to play college tennis yeah I think um, you know I was always a pretty good student so the academic the academic piece was important to me but um, you know I love college sports I love college basketball college football so my original list was actually probably most, mostly big state schools uh, and kind of all over the country. And, and, you know, funny enough, I ended up 45 minutes down the road from my house at Brown. Um, but, you know, I, I, you know, Michigan was, was definitely on my list. Um, and I remember talking to the assistant coach at the time. Uh, it was a coach Greenberg, I think. Um, and 
uh, UNC and UCLA and Stanford and all places like this. And, you know, I had probably a minor, <laughs> a little bit of interest in places like that, but I, my tennis wasn't quite at the level. And so um, eventually I was kind of narrowing it down. For me, the important pieces were a good balance of tennis and academics. Uh, Some place that I thought that I could make an impact on the team, whether that was, you know, playing right away. If it wasn't, that I felt like I was at least competitive and going to have a shot to play. Um, and, you know, again, for me, that was important. I think for every kid, it's a little bit different with that. And the schools I ended up visiting, I took visits to uh, Brown, Brown, Yale, Harvard, and Notre Dame. Uh, and if, I, and if those hadn't worked out, I was talking to uh, Virginia um, and uh, Minnesota. And actually, Coach Guest is now at UPenn, was at Minnesota at the time. Uh, I was really excited that he had an interest in me because um, I was, you know, kind of a mid-ranked national player, and he had an amazing team. Uh, so I was uh, really flattered that he had some interest. Um, but those are the things that, that were important to me. And again, things things just happened a little bit later at that point. You know, I, I was junior heading into senior year when I was thinking about all these things. Nowadays, the kids really have to start thinking about, you know, at least putting together preliminary lists and things like that in their sophomore year. And again, for better or worse, sometimes I wish, you know, the, the process is a little bit more delayed than it is. But I think the reality is with the rules and how they've changed and all the information out there, um, that, that's the way it's going with, with the timetable. And, and kids these days have to ha- start having those kind of preliminary thoughts about what they're interested in and what they might, you know, like to get out of their college experience, you know, probably a year and a half to two years before I did. And so getting back to that, I, although I do want to ask something off of your answer, I know your dad played at Minnesota. And so, you know, just looking yeah. at that from that perspective, uh, was there any pressure in your mind, maybe go to Minnesota, you know, or was your dad saying, you know, it'd be really nice if you were a golden gopher? No, he, um, you know, he had a great experience in Minnesota and did well there. Um, but he's kind of been all over the country. He, he actually grew up in California and it was a little bit um, almost random. He ended up at Minnesota. I think the coach was out in California recruiting another player. I think my dad happened to beat that player and, and, and ended up with a scholarship <laughs> offer in Minnesota. So uh, he ended up there and then, you know, moved out to the East Coast. And so, um, you know, it, it wasn't like he was born and raised in Minnesota. And that was, you know, his uh, a school that was kind of driven into our minds from the from the beginning. Um, but again, like I said, Coach Getz was there. And uh, really, it was Coach Getz's, Getz's interest in me that um, they had me interested in this course. Well, then, so then going back to part two of my question, and it feels like it was 20 minutes ago that I asked the question because, you know, listening closely, but um, you, you look at it from a player's perspective now and you think, what, what does, as a young junior prospect, what should these players be doing to prepare themselves not only for college tennis, but for making, you know, their college decision and, you know, choosing where they're going to be living for their four years on campus? Yeah, I think um, I think it starts with kind of having a, um, a a large a large net that you're casting in terms of looking at schools. I think sometimes people narrow their list down a little bit too quickly without you know really thinking through all of um, you know all of the different factors. I think you know you want to look at you know you want to look at academics, you want to look at tennis, um, and you kind of want to look at just kind of your quality of life, whether it's social, uh, whether it's being in a city or being in a more rural environment, a type of campus you like. So there's, there's really a lot of factors. And I, again, I think you want to kind of cast a wide net and, and kind of narrow things slowly down from there. And uh, again, these days, I think kids have to start doing it pretty early, um, you know, soft, end of sophomore year, sophomore into junior year, because now we can start contacting and doing official visits at the beginning of junior year. That, that rule just went into effect um, for this coming September. So the process is getting more accelerated. They have to kind of start that. that well, that... that um, Oh, no, no, sorry to cut you off, but then I, I want to give Max a chance to get his two cents in. You know, what is it that Coach Drake did so well, and it's a free plug for you, Coach, that that led you to say, you know, Dartmouth's the school for me. What was it on the recruiting trail that had Dartmouth appealing to you? Uh, well, I think first and foremost, I mean, I, I you know, I look for the same things that Coach Drake did uh, in terms of a school overall. I obviously focus on academics heavily as well. Um and you know wanted that same balance that he mentioned but i think i don't know what appealed to me about dartmouth was definitely the 
cohesiveness of the team, um, which was a prevailing theme throughout my career and I think continues to be. Um, you know, my closest friends from college were on are on the tennis team slash were. Um, so, and then, I don't know, uh, I think Coach Drake definitely made it pretty clear that, you know, he was looking at me for my development down the road, whereas I think a lot of other coaches, um, correct me if I'm wrong, look for, you know, how good is a player right now. Sell you on playing. Yeah, right. Then, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And so I think uh, that's also what appealed to me because I wanted to continue to improve. Oh, and so. Absolutely. And actually, Coach Drake... I, w- I meant to ask you a different question at the beginning as well, but this is just about Max's time at Dartmouth. I know you guys had a team group me or a group chat or whatever, and I know you you know every year you use that group chat. You ask the seniors, you know, at the end of the season, sorry guys, we have to kick you out of the group and bring in the new <laughs> freshman. What you may not know is that the poem Max sent in the group was co-written by yours truly, Michigan graduate Alex Gruskin. So I need to know what were your thoughts on his goodbye poem. Oh, I think you know my thoughts. I think it was awesome. I was, I was impressed. Normally, it's kind of like, a, hey, guys, this was great. I'll see you later. Uh, and Max dropped some rhymes. It was like a, a rap slash poem. It was uh, it was impressive. I told him I was going to... I was gonna print it out and, and put it up in the locker. Yeah, no, I told I told Alex you'd said you said that. <laughs> well, I just did you appreciate his usage of the word Seguin? Because Seguin, sorry, I believe it's Sanguine. I believe it's Benjamin Seguin, <laughs> and that's what stuck in my head. But yeah, did you like his Sanguine? Yeah, I, I, I figured now that I know you were in there, you're just trying to impress all the Ivy League. <laughs> Exactly. Look, it's half the fun. Uh, I believe the uh, Dirty Dozens and Bosoms slant rhyme was my idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you, you got the Dirty Dozens in there. That's good. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad to hear. But okay, let's let's get back to your college tennis career because you had quite the prolific career for our listeners who don't, you know, I guess didn't follow your college tennis career, which would be a weird thing, I suppose, if they did. Um, you know, you set a lot of records while a part of the Brown team. I almost said it as a part of the Dartmouth team. That's, But yeah, as, as a member of the Brown team, you were second uh, and fourth in single season wins in singles all time. You were tied for third in doubles. You look at your all-time wins. You are number two in singles and number six in doubles. And then overall, you're number four overall in combined wins. Of course, you have a first-team All-Ivy appearance in singles as well as in doubles. Just such a prolific career, which, of course, culminated with you bringing home Brown's first Ivy League title your junior year. Um, Talk to me a little about your college tennis career. You know, you said you were hesitant at first to play college tennis, but you read these articles about you, and it sounds like you were the consummate team player, you know, just really enjoying the team experience and doing uh, whatever it takes to win. And so for our listeners who don't know how great of a product college tennis is, how unique it is as a tennis player to get to play in the team environment. Uh, talk to us about what your t- experience was like at Brown. Yeah, I mean, um, going back, like I said, I think casting that wide net when you're looking is important. I think, um, you know, I remember John Choboy, um recruited me at Brown. He was in his first year. Uh, and when he called me, he asked if Brown was in, in, in my top five, and I said, it's not even in my top ten. Like, I, I hadn't looked at it at all. You know, I hadn't, <laughs> hadn't talked to him. And, and um, you know, it ended up being the perfect fit for me kind of in all three areas, tennis-wise, um, academics, and, and kind of so I just felt like it was a great fit. Um, so I think, again, that's, that's really important that, that kids keep an open mind about all, all sorts of different places and what, what might end up being a good fit. But uh, I couldn't ask, I couldn't have asked for anything more from, from my college tennis experience. Um, you know, again, Coach Choboy um, really took an interest in me. Um, he and I are still close to, to this day, and I always say that my, my college tennis experience is why I'm a college coach now. I just uh, – I had – a great experience individually. I felt like I really improved as a player. Um, Coach Choboy really helped me develop my game. I came in, you know, I think I had a lot of skills, you know, from from the things my dad had taught me. But he, you know, I went from a player that probably played, you know, 10 feet behind the baseline and just tried to run balls down and play defense to by, you know, the time I graduated, uh, being a guy that was serving volume twice a game and, uh, you know, coming forward all the time. And, and so... I developed a lot individually. Uh, our team obviously did really well. Um, we were we we had some really good players. Uh, I mean, there are still two 
two guys from my team at Brown that are still playing professional tennis. Uh, Jamie Farrakhani and Nabil Shamasin are both, uh, I think, in the top 60 or 70 in the world in doubles right now. Uh, they want to they want a professional event together, uh, ATP event together. We had another player, Justin Natale, who I think got to maybe 500 in the world in singles. Um, you know, and, and uh, we had we had a lot of good we had a lot of good players, so uh, we were really close. The team worked really hard. You know, um, it, was, it was a fun culture to be be a part of, and fun to be kind of a part of. You know, building a building a program there, obviously culminating in our in the first Ivy title. Um, you know, in Bronze Tree, which was which was a great moment. Um, and like I said, I, I I loved the school. Had a great experience. You know, academically, and you know, made some of my best friends. Um, yeah, during my time there, both on the team and, and outside of it. So the, the obvious follow-up question, I think, in this instance, you bring home Brown's first Ivy League title. Obviously, this year as a coach, you guys bring home an Ivy League title for Dartmouth. Uh, Max, earmuffs here in case he doesn't answer how you like, but which one was sweeter? Mm-hmm. Uh, gosh, um, you know, obviously they were both great. The, the one here took a little bit longer. It was my third year at Brown. Uh, and, and we won. It took eight seasons to share Dartmouth. So, um, and we were, we were trying just as hard the whole way. So, so you know, maybe as a coach, but uh, pretty, pretty fun. You know, similar feelings. You know, just working, working as a, as a group with a bunch of guys that you care about towards, towards something, and then, you know, kind of getting over, the, over the top and achieving it. It's a, it's a great experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the confidence you get as a player from having success, winning an Ivy League title, you know, being an all Ivy League player and having so much success during the dual match season and accumulating all of those wins. I know you took a year off after you graduated. And by the way, I see on your Wikipedia page that you have a degree in American history. I also have a degree in history. So shout out to us. And if it was up to me and Fliegner wasn't here, we just talk U.S. presidents the rest of the way. But uh, he gave me the veto. Oh, that, that would be... That would be embarrassing for me, I'm sure. Uh, uh, it's it's, it's foggy now, but uh, history uh, majors are getting fewer and further between, so uh, it was a great degree. I, I loved it. I have some takes on Rutherford B. Hayes that'll blow your mind, but uh, we'll save them for another time, I suppose. Uh, but so, you know, you know, getting back to it, you take a year off, coach in Boston, and then you decide, you know, you wanted to give it a go on the pro tour. Um you know, nowadays college tennis is controversial. People are saying, is it a viable development path to the pros? You know, should be these players who have all the success in the juniors even waste their time developing a year in college? You know, you look at a player like yourself and all of those players you mentioned earlier who get four years of college doubles experience, then you manage to break the top 100 in doubles. You know, how many guys have we seen? You look at the Bryans. Mike Bryan today gets back to number one in the world at age 40 in doubles. He played years of college yeah. tennis. Um, I, I guess to you, even now, how viable of a path is college tennis for peop- for young players who have pro aspirations? Yeah, I think it's certainly a viable path. You, you, you've seen it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really clear at Wimbledon this year you have guys doing – Doing well in doubles. I think all four semifinalists have uh, played college tennis. You know, I think was it three, three guys in the round of 16. Um, you know, that played college tennis. So uh, it, it's certainly something uh, that's been proven out that, that you can play co- you can play college tennis and then have a successful professional career. I think you know, in the case of the three of us, that, that you know, three even four of us that you know did well at Brown uh, and went on and played professionally. I think. You know, for most of us, it was also something that we we weren't planning on before we went. You know, in my case, I, I wasn't even planning on it when I graduated. As you said, I went and worked for a year and then, then went back out. I think I think what sometimes people underestimate is, you know, how long you have that you can you can continue to develop that, you know, you don't have to be a successful pro at, you know, 18 or 19 or even 20 necessarily to, to continue to get better, um, you know, and... and you know, do well at the, at the highest levels of the sport, you know, that, that there is time, especially these days, you know, people are maturing and the sport's getting more and more physical, uh, that sometimes it's even a benefit if you're, if you're maturing a little bit later and, um, you know, don't have all the mileage on you. So I think it's certainly a viable, viable pathway for people that are thinking about pro tennis in their junior careers. Uh, and then the great thing I think about college tennis is sometimes people, people come to that realization uh, during their college careers and say, you know, just because they've improved so much and say, hey, why not take a shot and see where it goes. 
Well, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think people uh, very much underrate uh, how valuable just even a year of college is. Like you mentioned, you can find, you know, explore. Maybe it is history is your passion. Maybe it's like Max. You are a young chemist who's ready to work wonders in the medical field or things of that nature. Um, I do want to ask a little bit of trivia uh, just about your college tennis career and then about your time on the pro tour because you have some fun results we should certainly talk about. But the one thing I want to ask, I know James Blake, his last year was 99. Were you at all overlapping with him, or did you start, was it 99-2000, right after he left? I started in 99. He, he was too good. Uh, he, he only played two years. So after his second year, uh, he went pro. I think he, I believe he only lost one match that year in college tennis, and I think it was in the finals of the NCAA to Jeff Morrison uh, from Florida. <laughs> But, you know, he was clearly, um, clearly, you know, the best player in college tennis, and, and it was time for him to, to move on. But I, I missed him. Uh, I would have overlapped uh, for two years had he stayed for his full four at Harvard. Oh, and I bet you would have gotten a shot at him in doubles, too. And wouldn't that have been fun to talk about? But speaking of some fun matches you've had in doubles, I want to take our listeners back to September 12th to September 18th, 2005. You know, we're taking us back over th- around 13 years to Orleans, France. I probably butchered that pronunciation, but it is a challenger where a young Chris Drake is back on the pro tour. He's making his move towards the top 100. And in the round of 16, he plays this. Wimbledon round of 16 2018 singles participant Chris do you remember the match and do you remember the score oh I think I do I think that was Jill Simone <laughs> it was and and it was a doubles match do you remember who you were playing um, I was playing I was playing with Buterak I believe that's correct and I think uh, I think we beat him in three like 6-4 in the third maybe uh, six four four six six three over Simone and Roger Vasselin, uh, which is ridiculous. Who, who, yeah, has had a really good doubles career. I think I remember that tournament. They had a a main site uh, in a convention center that was a, a very slow hard court, and then they had a secondary site where, of course, they played most of the doubles. That was lightning fast indoor courts, and that 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 helped us out quite a bit. Well, I I know you're not that old, but I just want to ask: Have you ever played a match on carpet? Uh, I have, yeah. What is that? Like, what is it? I, I've never understood, I've never grasped the concept of a carpet court. Yeah, me neither. There's, there's kind of, there's actually a few different types of carpet. There's one type of carpet, I, I think you find most, most carpet courts these days in Germany, uh, there's one type of carpet that, that literally is almost like a very thin carpet. You wouldn't necessarily see it in a, in a house, but it, it almost feels the same. It's very thin, it's very fast, so the ball is just sliding on it. Uh, and then there's another type of carpet that almost, it's almost like, um, it's not quite as long with the, with the grass, but it's almost like, uh, uh, turf fields that you see. And it has the, okay. it has the, the rubber, the black rubber, uh, oh. almost balls underneath. So you kind of, you slide on it. It's really strange. Uh, yeah. so you actually slide on this indoor carpet and that one plays a bit slower. The fittings, the footings obviously a bit messy. I didn't like that a whole lot. The other, the, the fast carpet, that, that's kind of fun to play on. The ball box is really low, really fast court. Sligner would have played well on that. Well, <laughs> well, I'm just thinking, isn't there a lot of friction created when you're sliding on a carpet? And aren't you going to shock, like, the sh** of yourself? Like, isn't it just, oh, like, again, I'm not a chemist, but uh, it, it, Fligner, yes or no, doesn't that sound possible? Uh, we should actually consult Charlie Broom, our number one tennis player, as a biochem major. <laughs> Oh, that, that may be true. Yeah. And a former GSP interviewee, I may also well, add. Yeah, so, no. shots to Charlie. But okay, my last trivia question from your pro career. That same tournament, semifinals, you played a guy who has reached number one in the world in doubles, as well as another uh, accomplished player. Do you remember that semifinal match? It was a loss. We, you took played a, somebody you, who reached, we played somebody who reached number one in the world. I think, wasn't it uh, Benetton Mahout? It was Benetton Mahout, and do you remember the score? I remember it was not close. <laughs> 06-2-6. Not, uh, maybe not your best work. Um, but still, I mean... I think that was one of our first... That was one of our first challengers, and, you know, we kind of made it through. And then those guys, I think, that year as a team had made... Um, 
I think they made quarters or semis of the U.S. Open, and, and they showed us a, a different level of, of tennis than we were accustomed to. I mean, Nicholas Mahout, he could, he will probably still be playing doubles at 55. The game is just so effortless. One of my favorite doubles players to watch, despite his one-handed backhand. I love watching him and Air Bear. I think that's a fun team, but... I suppose that's a conversation for another time. Um, I do, obviously, you are a college coach now, and I want to talk about your transition into the college coaching game. I know after your, you know, you you do advance into the top 100 in doubles, but for you, you know, it, it wasn't enough, and you wanted to hang it up, and then you go to Chicago Business School for a summer, and then you get a call from Arvid Swan, and he says, hey, I got the Northwestern job. I want you to be my assistant coach. Come with me. Um at that point, were you ready to move on for the, from the game? Or did you think, you know, having all the success you did at Brown, you know, just enjoying the team aspect of the sport so much that you were going to get back into college coaching? Yeah, a little bit of both. I think, um, you know, I took that break in the summer after playing in Winnetka and then, um, you know, was looking into whether or not I wanted to keep playing or whether I wanted to move on. Eventually decided that I, I, I was ready to move on. You know, I played for two and a half years, but two and a half to three years. And for me, uh, I was, I was kind of ready to, to see what was next in, in my life. So I was looking into things in business, you know, and I kept coming back to college tennis. I think all the things I was looking to in the, the business world, I was trying to find things that were going to, you know, kind of add up to something similar to my experience in college. And, you know, I just didn't really feel like I, I, I found it and, and saw the job was open at Northwestern. You know, I knew a bit about, about I knew a bit about the school because my sister went to Northwestern, and um, so I actually called Arvid. Um, I think I, I made the first call, but he was he was responsive as he always is. Um, Making the first move, I like and, it. What's that? I like that you make the first move. It's aggressive. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, nobody knew that I was probably looking into college tennis and. Um, but yeah, he was, he was getting started there and, and I, I liked, you know, kind of his thoughts on how he's trying to, to build the team there and, um, ended up being, um, you know, a good, a good fit, a good place to start. Well, two things uh, from that. One, you mentioned that you had just played Winnetka, and that's a Winnetka challenger you actually won. And in that match, you beat someone who is still alive and matches up with Federer in the quarterfinals. You beat Kevin Anderson in the quarterfinals in dubs, a win that deserves a shout-out, certainly. So, again, cue the victory bells. Uh, but, you know, talking about... Uh, you know, getting or, or one thing I want to talk about as well, and I can't believe I forgot to mention it. During your pro career, you play a tournament in New York where you meet your wife. Um, can you tell us that story? Because that sounds like a very interesting story. Yeah, uh, I played the Forest Hills Challenger. I believe it was one of the ones on draft. Um, and actually, my my now wife uh, Eliza uh, lived with two of two of my friends from Brown. Uh, a couple of women that I've been you know, been friends with there, and I was coming in for the tournament, obviously, as a, as a cash-strapped doubles player, I'm always looking for a spare couch, so, particularly in New York, uh, they were out of town, and so I was saying, I stayed at their, their place, and, uh, met Eliza when, when they all returned home from a weekend away, um, yeah, I've been playing the tournament there for, for four or five days, and, um, yeah, they stayed in touch as I was traveling, uh, she ended up coming on a few trips with me, and I, I from then on, you know, my my uh, interim breaks in between being out on the road for anywhere from four to eight weeks, I always you know go back to New York and and, and stay with her. Well, here's a softball question then for you: What do you value more, those wins over Simone and Anderson, or that trip to uh, that Forest Hills Challenger all those oh years ago? Oh wow, that'll earn me some points. That is a softball question. Uh, certainly, certainly the trip to New York actually. Uh, I'd love to, I should go through at some point and check, but my win-loss record when, when travel, either in New York uh, or traveling with, with Eliza was close to 90%. So I think if, um, if I made a little bit more money playing and I could have brought her with me, I might have had a longer pro career. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear it. And then, you know, talking about your time at Northwestern, obviously incredibly successful. You and Harvard helped turn around the program. You get them inside the top 40 by the time you leave. And then, you know, the Dartmouth head coaching job opens up and, you know, you're a Brown guy. I'm sure you didn't hold any rivalry prejudices or anything like that. But when a job in the Ivy League opened up for men's tennis team, was it something you wanted to pounce on immediately? Or was there some hesitance? You know, it sounds like from the way Max described it, you and Arvid are quite close. And so was it, you know, you had hesitance about leaving that job and starting something new at Dartmouth? 
Yeah, I mean, Arvid's, Arvid's still a great friend. Uh, he and I talk all the time. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed working with him and, and my time at Northwestern for those three years. It was a great school. Um, you know, he, he, he program on on to, to much bigger and better heights after I left. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, 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 I was, uh, you know, I think I always, you know, was comfortable, obviously, with the Ivy League because of, because of my experience. And, and it, I also knew that it would be, you know, a good fit in terms of me being able to to get a head coaching job. You know, um, the the coaching profession in Division One tennis is, is a competitive world, and jobs aren't easy to get. Opportunities aren't aren't easy to get. Um, and I always knew that I'd be, you know, at least, you know, hopefully in consideration for Ivy League jobs. So it's always something that I I kept an eye on. Uh, Arvid was always great in terms of, you know, pushing me to look for opportunities and things. Um, and so. I think it was actually midway through my last season. My predecessor at Dartmouth, Chuck Union, called me and you know said that he was going to retire at the end of the year. Uh, so he really gave me a heads up and you know asked if I'd be interested in things. So uh, I was always grateful to Chuck uh, for for thinking of me. Um, yeah, and came on my interview here and liked what the administration had to say about their you know trying to do with their athletics and with the tennis team. And, um, ended up ended up being a good fit. Uh, it certainly is, and you look at your time there. The team has had so much success um, over the past few years. You know, you look at your record. You start out thirteen and seven your first year, then eighteen and four. You know, then a down year, but since then it's been steady progress throughout the Ivy League. You guys are finishing top three routinely. Um, I guess taking over this program. You know, you had not you had been an assistant coach, but you had never been the head coach before. And I believe you got the job. You were what 30, 31, still pretty or no, is that is that right? Am I wrong? 20 I think I was 29. 29. Okay, Fligner gave me a look and he was like, "What? Like, I don't know. He he acted like I was treating you like you're 45 now." It's like, <laughs> "No, I think I got my math right." Um and so yeah, um you know, taking over a program like that having had a college tennis experience, what is it that you sought to build at Dartmouth? You know, is it the culture that you build first? Is it getting in the right players? Yeah, I think a little bit of everything. I think you certainly think about the culture first. I think that's your that's the foundation for everything you do. So that's where a lot of my thoughts were uh, starting out. And I was, I was really lucky to, to inherit a lot of kids that were um, – you know, they were great, you know, great kids wanted to, wanted to work hard, um, you know, wanted to get better, wanted to continue to, to improve, you know, Dartmouth tennis. Um, actually, the year before, they had done a little bit better than, in the Ivy League, and I think even lost a couple close matches that made it an even better season. So, uh, just try to kind of keep that momentum going, and then obviously put my own, you know, my own stamp on things. I had a lot of ideas, both from my time at Northwestern, um, and from my time as a player at Brown, um, you know, and things that, that I thought were important, that were important about, you know, building a successful Ivy League team. Um, you know, just tried to, to implement some of those things and then and then learn as you go. So I think, um, you know, a lot of the things that we started then eight years ago are, are, you know, still there today. And then there are probably some other things that, you know, went by the wayside because, you know, they weren't, they weren't the right way to go. Well, one policy that's really interesting to me uh, is your choice not to have any team captains. You believe in, you know, building that everyone's got to bring a little bit of leadership out. Where does that philosophy come from? Because it is something to me that seems unique amongst college tennis programs. Yeah, uh, so I think it was after my third, our third year, um, you know, we've kind of been doing, doing captains and uh, I thought we needed to shake it up a little bit uh, and just, you know, think it through a little bit more. Uh, I had to think it through a little bit more on my end. How are we choosing captains? What sort of process are we doing? Is it just something that's happening, or is there, is there some, you know, some thought to it? Um, and I actually wanted to do uh, just one captain. And you know, there was some pushback from the team. I listened to some of their ideas, and what we decided to do was kind of table it until uh, January of the next year. So we're going to go through the fall. You know, here are some of the things we're going to talk about with leadership. Here, you know, we're going to do some 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 different things to kind of develop the leadership on our team. And then, you know, we'll revisit in January. We'll either decide to have one captain or, you know, whatever. I, I, I wanted their input on it. Um, and then things went so well in the fall uh, that we, we we talked with the group, um, you know, a couple of seniors, Brandon DeBoe and, and Cameron Gorbani. Um, you know, we're doing a great job and we kind of all just settled on, hey, let's just, let's just leave it, you know. And, and, you know, we thought that it kind of gave, uh, gave everybody room to develop as leaders and 
you know, some were going to develop more in certain areas than others, and, and, and kind of as people emerged and, and, and earned, earned some authority in different areas that they, you know, they could speak up for the team. And, you know, after that, we just, we just kind of went with it. So, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's been good. Um, but, you know, I think some people that do it with captains, obviously, have effective structures and things like that. It just, it just seemed to work well for, for our team and, um, yeah, kind of made things less hierarchical. Yeah, and, you know, I want to read a quote from you. Again, this is from the Northwestern article because, uh, you know, I just thought it was really interesting. You talked about how, you know, balancing for the the student-athlete, it doesn't really matter what you accomplish on the court if they're not having a successful balance during their college life, um, if you're not connecting with them on a personal level. And I just want to ask, because as an Ivy League coach, the academic rigor is a bit, you know, to say the least, a bit more than your average program. And yes, all of these students expect that, but still coming in, it is a huge transition from high school and juniors to that Ivy League and then as well as that, you know, high level of D1 tennis. Um, How important is it for you to make sure kids find a balance in their first, you know, few years, even if it takes more than a year? And, you know, to you, is the balance of student uh, or of academic athletic life even more important than achieving that success just on the tennis court? Yeah, I think one. I think one has to do with the other. I think if their if their lives, if your players' lives don't have some balance, then it, it's less likely that you're going to succeed. That you're going to see the success on the court. Uh, so you know, certainly making sure that they're that they're that they're balancing their their time that they're handling their academics, that they're handling the tennis, um, and, and being able to do it all with, you know, without losing their minds is, um, it, it's hard. Like you said, I think the biggest thing at, at a place like Dartmouth is, um, you know, you come into this environment that's so competitive, uh, whether or not, you know, everybody's comparing grades or, or things like that. You come into a really competitive tennis environment. You've got good players all around you. You've got, you know, you want to be in the lineup. You want to be, playing well and you come from your section where you're probably one of the best players and now you're, you know, thrown in where everybody else is just or good or better and, and there's a lot of pressure there. Same thing academically, you know, you were a good student in high school and OSN is one of the best and brightest and now you're dumped into a class where, you know, you've got you've got people, you know, with perfect SAT scores and all kinds of achievements. And so again, you know, you're dealing with um, just kind of normalizing a lot of the things that um, you know, I guess probably gave you some confidence growing up. So I think, uh, I think that that stress is probably the biggest thing to, you know, to handle and get used to, and and re, you know, kind of settle in and realize that you know you're gonna, you're going to be fine. You can do it on the tennis court. That you know you can handle things academically and you can keep up, and um, and that you can manage the two. I think it's it's certainly why I have a lot of respect for, you know, what the guys on our team do because. Um, it is a challenge. It is hard. It's, it's hard logistically keeping up with all of it, uh, and it's it's hard in terms, um, you know, from a from a stress standpoint, just kind of dealing with everything. But uh, I think they learn to deal with it and uh, help them down the road. Well, here is the quote I was looking for, and it's something you said. You said, it's a lot of personal connection as well. If the kids don't think they can talk to you or trust you, the things you're trying to get out of them on the tennis court may not come through. All the time you're spending on tennis may not pay off if you're not there for the kids. And so I want to ask you, Max, uh, you know, talking about these two things in general, one, the transition from junior tennis to Ivy League and balancing that, that type of lifestyle, and then two, you know, what role the coach was able to play in your transition can you talk to us a little bit about that yeah I mean I I couldn't put it any better in terms of the adjustment you definitely are going from you know like I mean it's weird to say but but I'm not trying to toot my own horn but yeah you know you're going from a place where you might be at the top of your class or whatever and uh, academically and now you're just kind of middle of the pack or worse in some cases (laughs) and then yeah with the tennis same thing like you know, and, and then you're also competing against guys who are, you know, potentially four years older than you, whereas, you know, the juniors, unless you're really playing up, you're not doing that. So the tennis and the academic life are both big transitions. And another thing you didn't mention is the, or maybe you did, but um, the social uh, adjustment Very is also true. new. You know, you're being, you're away from your parents, especially if you're, if you go off to the East Coast, you know, like like myself from Michigan, so I'm a long way away from my family and, and you know, close friends from high school. So, uh, yeah, everything is a huge adjustment, and 
Um, you know, at Dartmouth in particular, it's accelerated nine week terms instead of, you know, whatever, 14. So yeah, everything is just a bit overwhelming. And I think I agree. I think it's really important for the coach to be involved in that process. And, you know, Chris actually was very involved. He, you know, he talks to us a lot and I've felt like, you know, I've, I've opened up to him about my personal life, um, sometimes throughout the, throughout my career. So, you know, that's, I think that's really important. Well, look, I can attest to it. This version of you is significantly cooler than the version of you that went off from high school to college. So You wouldn't have started a podcast with me before Well, college. I would have because I needed your producing skills. Oh, okay. But now yeah. I, I wouldn't have brought you on. Okay. Which now, yeah. you, have, you know, you set Fair. the mics. And yeah, so. right. <laughs> I set the mics and let you do your Yeah, thing. so I've certainly liked who you've become. Um, bef- you know, since I have you guys here, we can't, we've gone, what, 40 minutes? And we haven't even talked about your miraculous 2017-2018 uh, season, which ultimately culminated in an Ivy League title, which I consider my own as well, because <laughs> I did those summer dirty dozens with you, Fliegner, so I'll take the honorary ring if there's how many a... Did you, how many did you make? <laughs> just for... I, I did the first. You did the first one? <laughs> yeah, I yeah. made the second. Yeah. I don't know, it tailed off. It's as not a battle. Yeah, yeah. Like I, did, I didn't make the times. No, I'm... I'm not playing. Like it's... <laughs> I was going to make it's... a reference. I would be with Amon. Like, I would have <laughs> put the team... <laughs> But I don't know if, uh, if whatever that is. Yeah, that's an inside joke. Oh, I, I, I would. I think I would make zero now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. All right. All right. Let's talk about the season though. Um, so you know, you guys start out this year miraculously. You go on this incredible undefeated run. What were you guys? Eleven. Twelve and twelve and zero, or was it? 12 and 0 yeah, coach 12 and 0. Yeah. yeah 12 and 0 you win the ECAC which you know obviously a huge deal and in that you beat both Princeton and Harvard two Ivy League opponents you're going to see later on in the year uh, but then there's a bit of a dip you know you lose 3 out of your 4 uh, next matches and then you lose you know I think it's 6 out of your next uh, 9 or something like that uh Going from you know such the highs and lows of a college tennis season, there's it's so long and there are so many matches you have to play through. How do you, as a coach, Coach Drake, you know, make sure the guys stay leveled and stay balanced and are able to, uh, you know, handle the the variance of the college tennis season? Yeah, I think uh, you, you try to anticipate it. Um, you, you do your best as a coach not to not to get. Too high with the highs and not to get too low, too low with the lows. Um, I think you, you know, you try to balance that. You want to enjoy the, the victories and the success and, and things like that, but um, you know, not not get ahead of yourself and not let the guys get ahead of themselves in terms of thinking too much about you know the rankings or you know the results or all the achievements they want to have. You know, just to kind of stay stay in the process of the next day and things like that. So um, I think as much as you can be balanced as a coach, that I. That, that's something I strive to do. So um, hopefully, then you know, it kind of sets a sets a tone for the for the group. And you know, just after being through it for you know eight seasons as a head coach and three as an assistant, you see you see that every season kind of has ebbs and flows, and you're going to go through ups and downs and things like that. So um, you know, anticipate it. You know, even if you can kind of put it on their radar, hey, things are going to come up. You know, it, it, it's not going to go this smoothly the whole time, and so. You know, when it does, that you try to take it in stride. Well, on that note, uh, you know, and you don't have to reveal any trade secrets at this time, but in terms of balancing the dis- different aspects of the game, whether it be singles play, doubles play, uh, the fitness of your players, you know, how do you make sure you allocate enough time throughout the year for each of those things while also knowing, you know, these guys have this inc- uh, incredible academic schedule, so they're not all going to be able to practice at the same time? Yeah, it's, it's certainly an inexact science. I think um, it's my favorite over, science. Always, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know, I think you're always trying to be mindful of the players' players' energy, their mental and physical energy. You're trying to to push them when you can and conserve and then conserve things when when you need to. So, uh, you know, with Dartmouth now, we there's kind of a rhythm to the academic schedule, so you can anticipate some of those things uh, in terms of working on things with their games. You know, I think in the fall you're trying to cover a little bit of everything and just try to lay a good base for, you know, how you want to play doubles, mixing the double teams around. We, we last few years, mixed the double teams around quite a bit. So guys get used to playing with other guys. There are certain, certain things that we want everybody to do so that even if we have set double teams, if there's an injury or we need to change, that that's not going to completely, you know, freak everybody out. Uh, you're trying to build things in there in their game that you think, you know, will help them in the short run, but also, you know, hopefully keep them developing to play their best in the, 
in the dual match season. Um, and then once you're in the dual match season, I think things get a little bit more specific um, and, and guys have kind of more defined roles. You know, you start to find out, you know, which guys are in your lineup, uh, which guys, if they're not in the lineup or close to the lineup, you got to make sure those guys stay sharp. They need to come in managing the energies of the guys that are in the lineup because they're playing so much on the weekends. Um, you know, and then certainly getting in some more specific doubles work with, you know, your individual doubles teams, you know, so the guys that are playing together, what do they need, you know, uh, before a weekend, you know, from, from the, the last weekend you play to, to be ready to play well. Well, I have, I have a fun question for the two of you guys, and it may pit you guys against each other, which in the end is what I'm looking for. So All we'll right. start with you, Max. What was your least favorite drill Coach Drake had you guys do throughout your time at <laughs> Oh, Dartmouth? That's, that's easy. It no, was... you can't say Dirty Dozens. That's too No, no, no. Okay. No, that's not what I was going to say. Chill. <laughs> yeah, no, I love the Dirty Dozens. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, it, was the, uh, it was the Tabata Sprints freshman, uh, freshman fall. Or freshman, maybe it was freshman winter. That's not a drill. That's, a, that's, that's a, no, but exercise. That's fair. Okay. <laughs> no, that counts. Does that count as? That's gotta well, count as a drill. Explain to bra- Explain that to our listeners. Well, who don't so, know what it is. God, I'm struggling to remember the exacts, but I think we did like two rounds of, uh, basically 20 second sprints with 10 seconds rest in between, and it was two rounds of seven of those. So it was basically <laughs> like seven court lengths, and I think we had to run it in under 18 seconds. And then we had only 10 minutes, 10 seconds rest in between each of those seven, then a two minute break, and then another round of seven. And I think it, like a few of us were just yacking after the first seven. Like I remember, productively, productively, yeah, no, healthily. Right. Yeah. I um, mean, in my case, it was just dry heaving. But uh, Paul, I just remember Paul like keeling over um, because you know Paul, he's six six, like two. 20 or whatever like yeah. his his body is was made not adjusted his, at the time. yeah his body was not made for at the time was not made for quick bursts like that and uh yeah me and him, he, him and i were just like we were dying and, and what about favorite tennis or least favorite tennis drill? least favorite tennis or drill? most difficult i guess is a better better term it's a good question I'm trying to think um anything involving a forehand <laughs> yeah right <laughs> that's uh that's very fair it's very fair. Uh, you got nothing, nothing big. No, not really. I mean, I'm it's trying to think of anything. It's mostly the fitness you remember. Yeah, it was just <laughs> fitness. Yeah, because I actually all, like all, tennis. All the drills we do are really fun. So. <laughs> yeah. Right. right. Exactly. So then, kids, come to Dartmouth. It's yeah, fun. So then, the counterpoint, Coach Drake. What is your favorite drill that you know your your team will get frustrated that you make <laughs> them do, but you have them do it anyway because you like it so much? Uh, we do. We have we have one uh, smart court with um, with uh, you know from. from oh, that should have been obvious. Yeah, that should have been obvious. Yeah, they they all hate doing it because they have to hit to a certain spot and, and the playside machine occasionally will miss a call here or there. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it has to be very specific, you know, where they have to hit it. And they get super frustrated doing that. Uh, oh, to say uh, the least. You know, like like with any team, if you do. Uh, when you do something that's new, there's usually some, there's usually some friction there. Uh, they, yeah. They get used to it, so. People fear what they don't know. That, that we know. Yeah, we try to mix things in that they don't, that they don't know about just to um, make them frustrated on purpose. And um, I get my other question. And this will be the last thing about you, your two practice experiences. Did you two ever play a set against each other? I don't think so. We played ground. Funny, I don't think we did. No, we played ground games. Even I always, I always lost the ground game. Oh no, we've played doubles. That's heads. what I'm saying. So, better doubles player, Coach Drake or you, Max? That's just a stupid question. I was, Coach Drake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you'd say something different. Oh, okay, okay, that's fair. Um, yeah. So then. Let, let's talk about one last thing, and then we'll get into our last segment, the rapid fire, because we've taken up enough of your time, Coach Drake. And I mean, Max took up four years of your time, so I'm yeah. sure you're ready to, you know, you kicked him out of the group yeah, for right. a reason. Yeah. yeah. Um, Finally cut the cord after this yeah. podcast. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the one match I can't let you guys escape without talking about is that match that ultimately clinched this year's Ivy League title, even though you shared it. You know, say what you will. You guys beat the team you shared it with, Columbia, head-to-head, 4-3 in Columbia, one of the most raucous places and in college tennis just because that bubble is so close. And 
you know, for those who don't know about the match, it was a 4-3 thriller. It uh, came down to the final court. You had Columbia taking doubles and taking the first two singles matches off of the court. And then, you know, you guys rally, take four singles matches, uh, three of them in three sets. Obviously, our boy Fliegner here uh, is in one of those third sets and is actually the second-to-last match to finish. So I want to ask you, Coach Drake, you guys are down 3-2. Uh, Fliegner loses that second set 6-3 but he is your senior not captain because there are no captains at Dartmouth but senior out there so you know he's got the experience uh what is going through your head as you watch Max play just so you know Max just we'll we'll, uh we'll quack this out but Max just looked at me and go coach Drake's thinking well it was uh it Max and Adam and Brosie were playing really, really good tennis. I mean, Max was way down in the first set uh, and got back into it, uh, playing just great tennis. So um, I knew he had been playing well. Even the second set, you know, was good tennis, and um, you know, and Brosie came up with some some great shots. And um, so I was just trying to think if you know I can keep Max in, in the right right place in the right frame of mind and keep him calm. Um, you know, that, that, that he'd have a shot because he was playing so well. So for me, it was just, you know, pretty simple with that. Keep trying to remind him to, uh, to stick with his routine, to try to, you know, not think too much about the score or the situation and, um, you know, just, just uh, try to keep his head clear because if his head is clear, he's going to play well and have a chance. And Max, is there anything particularly memorable you remember Coach Drake coming up and saying to you during the match? It was a lot of the same, like a lot of, <laughs> no, a lot of what we normally talk about, which is good. You know, we didn't, I was glad that he didn't make it out to be a bigger situation than, you know, a normal situation because it was bigger than we would normally be in. Uh, and it was abnormal in many ways, as I'm sure you'll uh, mention, but um, I'm sure you'll get to that. But, um, but yeah, I just think what stuck out was uh, how calm he was because that kept me calm because, you know, I mean, I can... I can I have a tendency to lose my temper every now and then and I think that helped me really? keep yeah it helped me keep my head on straight for uh you know those tough moments because like you said I was down 1-5 in the first uh saved a couple of set points and came back and then you know I thought I thought after that it'd be kind of smooth I mean it's ridiculous but I thought that at least I would have a good shot and then the second set Ambrosi came up like he said with some really really great shots. I remember being up 40 love in a game came in like three out of the next four points and he passed me on all of them and I was like I don't know what to do <laughs> you know I'm gonna lose this set because it's he's too good and um, yeah I think in the third set just staying calm you know, he and I both staying calm was, was really crucial, especially, like you said, it's so raucous and, like... Oh, yeah, so then let's get into it. For all, deuce point, there's, a, you know, an overrule that gives Max... Oh, well, no, 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 you gotta, you gotta go back all a right, little more. set it's the scene, set all. the scene for us. I was down, I think, 2-4 and... Sorry, 2-3. I'd, I'd been broken. 2-3. Um, and it was 40-15 uh, he was serving. I hit a ball that was likely out... I'm not gonna lie. I mean, it was probably out by a little bit, but he had already been overruled twice in the match, and and the guy overrules him, so that went from 40-15 to deuce in one overrule, and then on the and then so I take the ad side on uh, the deuce point. Um, naturally, he kicks it to my backhand. Naturally, I chip it short because I'm tight, and then naturally he comes into my forehand because that's my worst side, and I hit a miraculous passing shot, <laughs> and I hold my fist in the air and I'm like. We're back in this. I have no <laughs> idea what's going on the other side, but I know I'm back in it. And um, so three all ended up holding, I think, for four three. And uh, we were on serve. I must have been serving. Yeah, we. I was probably serving four all, and then that's when the magic happened. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. you know, for the uh, we've talked about it before, but obviously, so you win that match, and then it comes down to court three. You've got the freshman Dan out there ends up getting a bagel in the third. Um, Coach Drake, what's the first thing that's going through your mind as Dan's playing that, you know, as he's playing that clinching point? Yeah, I mean, we came over from Max's side of it. It was, it was you know, crazy at the end and, um, you know, emotional. And, and we, we run over and I just, you know, uh, I remember being 
just uh, surprised how calm Dan was. He was just he was in a good groove. He was just swinging free and hitting the ball so well. And I remember thinking we we've got a good shot. Obviously he was he was up at that time. I think he was up four zero. But um, Jack Lynn was serving at forty love and um, you know a hold there four one. And you know things can get interesting when it's the last match. But Dan actually came back and broke him from from forty love and um, you know they go up five five zero. Again, he was just he was playing so well um, and seemed to be in you know such a groove that uh, it, it you know seemed like we had you know really turned the tide and you know we're gonna have a good chance to win. So uh, it was amazing because it was you know such a such a struggle all the way all the way back. It didn't look like we were gonna win that match until until things really turned and then all of a sudden you know we, we really had had the edge. Do you remember the first person you hugged post match? Uh, I don't actually. <laughs> it's probably Paul. I feel yeah. like Paul's huge. Yeah, exactly. It's just the I natural know, I like. I think like everybody, you know, everybody ran on the court. Um, so everybody was kind of on the court. Everybody was just in Paul's and, arms. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. So I, I don't remember. I remember trying to grab Dan to, to make sure he went up and shook. Uh, Jack oh yeah, that's um, funny. You can see that in the video. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well then, I will. I, this will be my last question before we get into our final segment. I know I said that a little bit ago, but before we get into our rapid fire, um, I want to allow you, Coach, because you were so kind. You, you know, you give us your time to answer all of these questions. Give us your, you know, one minute pitch on why Dartmouth is the right school for young college, uh, young players seeking to play college tennis. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think. As Max said, I think we have a great group of guys. We've had a great group. We've got great, you know, alums who support the program. Uh, it's a place I think you can develop your tennis. You're going to get a great undergraduate education, uh, and you're going to have a great experience socially because we have such great guys on the team, and there's great people at Dartmouth. I think our players, you know, uh, have improved, and we have a culture where people are really committed to their development. So, um, you know, I think we try to make an effort with everybody, everybody on the team, for, through this, from the top players to um, you know, everybody through the bottom to help them develop. So uh, I think it's a, it's a rewarding experience in the end. Well, I, I, like I mentioned before, Max has certainly come out greener. You like that pun on the other end of his time there. Uh, but before we let you go, we have to do a segment we do with everyone who comes on the Cracked Interviews podcast. It is our rapid fire segment where I'm just going to ask you a bunch of easy, you know, short questions. You can, you know, answer them in 10 seconds or less. Um, just to let our listeners know a little bit more about Chris Drake, not just the tennis coach, but about the guy. So the opening question, and this is, I'm going to throw in some new rapid fire segment. Uh, questions in the spirit of just you know why not so my first question favorite meal breakfast lunch or dinner breakfast oh i agree as well it's such an underrated you can never go wrong with an omelet um so i completely agree with you all right you might be a little out of this age range but lord of the rings or harry potter lord of the rings oh my yes God. and then Come on. The, the natural question and I, I i've never seen it but Gollum or smeagol <laughs> oh man, this, I feel like Flinger wrote these questions. Uh, I, I don't. I, I even though I said Lord of the Rings, I don't know. Um, Great answer, so, Gollum. <laughs> oh, I like. It. All right, favorite tennis player of all time. Now, Bandy. Oh, oh, probably the best answer you've given all podcasts. That is, I could not agree with you. We're talking about an explosive player. The only guy who Thank wasn't you. afraid of Fed, yeah, you know, outside okay. of Nadal. Yeah. Check out, check out, check out YouTube videos of Nalbandian beating Federer in five sets. That's ridiculous. You know, Max and I watched that exact video two nights ago. Uh, so, that's, that's yeah, great. yeah. That's, so, that's, that's some of the best. That's some of the best tennis ever played. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So then, all right, we'll keep going. Favorite non-tennis athlete of all time? Ah, gosh, I'm a Boston sports guy, so (laughs) I'm just going to go current. uh, Mookie Betts. Oh, Mookie Mookie Betts. Betts, Wow. uh, That's an interesting answer. Like, all right, favorite city in the world? Favorite city. And you can't say Boston. You know, but the favorite... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the fa- my, my, my favorite place I traveled to was Tel Aviv. Oh, Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv. I've been there myself. Beautiful city. Um, all right, yeah. the, the last book you read. The last book I read. Gosh, I should have a quicker answer for that. <laughs> um, Art of the Deal? <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know what? The last book I read was 
Eight Years We Were in Power in American Tragedy by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Oh, excellent, excellent author. Great choice. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we got the name. And then finally, the last question. You know, you know our organization is named Cracked Rackets. I've got to ask you, when was the last time Chris Drake cracked a racket? Cracked a racket. It's, I have to say it's been a while. Um, I would hope. Gosh, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, was it after you lost to uh, Owen 2 to Beneteau and uh, <laughs> they just smacked you and you smacked the racket? No, I don't think I smacked a racket then. Again, I was uh, a cash-strapped doubles player. And I don't think <laughs> I had any sort of big sponsorship, so I was hanging on to my rackets. Um, I tell you, when I was in the juniors, my, my dad's like, don't throw your racket, you'll get a point penalty. Just, you know, hit yourself on the foot. And I remember cracking a racket on my foot, though, once uh, on the bottom of my shoe, so... Um, I don't know if that was the last time, but I, I that. <laughs> well, we'll count it. Um, you know, one more time, I want to thank you, Coach Drake, for taking the time to do this podcast again. Since we had this idea, I bothered Max about having you on, and so to finally get the chance to do this to talk about your career and your time as a coach, we really appreciate it. And you know, we're obviously biased here, but we will forever be saying "Go Green" on this podcast. So thank you very much, Coach Drake. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And so, you know, one last time for Coach Drake, for my co-host and our super producer, Max Fligner, our other super producer, Daniel Westoff. I am your host, Alex Gruskin. Thanks a lot, Crack fans, and we will see you next time. Let's kill the real digital life with the sinker. The table drinks coffee in my kitchen. I mentioned it in every song. I just wanted to go away. You decide to stay in the well. I want to be forgiven. I don't like to skip for money. Sorry, I was scared. You're not the way it feels. Like to sleep whatever for someone to come in and kill you. The fun I did is that now I'm not a prince of anything Go take on a kill Anyone I feel so powerful They chip at you I read your skin up Everything is confusing You will be good But you will be more You will be good But you will be more